Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Let's talk about Buddhism tonight, week number seven, Buddhism, and compare it to what we've dealt with just in terms of sheer numbers of people. As I prayed just a moment ago, it is huge. Uh, It is the fourth largest religion in the world. And if you take Muslims, uh, just to look at who we've looked at here, that's breaking out Roman Catholics from evangelicals and Anglican and Greek Orthodox and others that would fall under the banner of Christians, at least in a sociological study. We're going to put that second as opposed to Muslims that that weigh in at 1.6 billion Roman Catholics. And as I said, that's not counting all those that would call themselves under the banner of Christ, 1.2 billion Hindus, 1.1 billion. uh, And the fourth largest religion in the world, uh, Buddhists. Buddhism at a half a billion people. Now, the thing about Buddhism that uh, is unlike some of these others, although Hinduism, I suppose, is pretty well concentrated, you'll see by the map up here that Buddhism is concentrated in in one particular area in China, Mongolia, India, Tibet, uh, eastern China, Bangladesh, Burma, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, those as it gets down in that concentrated area, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia. uh, This is where we find Buddhists uh, in large numbers. Now, if you look at the population, now again, some of these numbers, you've got two numbers in a column here because the research has been done with different uh, conclusions, but this is a big spread, I understand, 84 million to 45 million, but somewhere either at the top or the second or third largest country would be Japan. So if you're going to find a large uh, concentration of of Buddhists, it would be in Japan, a certain kind of Buddhism. In Thailand, uh, 64 million. In Myanmar, the R is silent, that's uh, the former... Kingdom of Burma, now it's got its new name. Sri Lanka, 14 million. Cambodia, 13 million. Taiwan, somewhere between 8 and 5 million. Laos and Nepal, rounding out the top, whatever that is, eight uh, countries. Now, if you meet someone from a country, uh, being able to guess their religious affiliation, you can do that by looking at this chart a little differently, and that is the total percent of Buddhists in that country. So you meet someone from Cambodia, for instance, you're almost for sure going to have someone who's, uh, if not a... uh, a Buddhist in practice, certainly one that's very familiar with Buddhism. So if you meet a Cambodian, uh, wherever religious background. Thailand would be next at 43%, uh, Burma at at 87%, Bhutan 74%, Sri Lanka, Japan at somewhere between 67 and 36%, depending on those numbers, which ones you're going to take, Uh, Laos and Mongolia at the bottom. These are all those countries. I picked those eight countries that are over half the population saying that they are Buddhists. So you know you're dealing with people in certain ethnic parts of the world that are going to claim Buddhism. If you're going to look at it in our country uh, and compare it to some of these uh, larger segments, it might look something like this. Roman Catholics at 66 million. We've studied them. Judaism, 5 million. Muslims, 1.5. And Hindus, 1.5. Well, Buddhists aren't too far behind at 1 million Buddhists in our country. And that should be no surprise here locally because we do have a, a large concentration on the West Coast. Uh, if you were to pull up the map and just look for a Buddhist um, churches, Buddhist temples, Buddhist gathering places, you'll find many dotted here on the map in South Orange County and Riverside and out as far as San Bernardino in this map. Uh, you might have noticed up there at Lake Forest and Moulton, they've opened up a brand new Buddhist center uh, right across from Crossline Church, our friend JP up there. That is you got group chanting going on every Sunday and every Monday night, the world peace prayer that goes on and all their instruction in Buddhism. Uh, here I just took a, a road street shot of it. If you're, This is facing south on Moulton, and it's right there by that uh, coffee shop that some of you guys go to. I forget what it's called. Javatini's, that's it. I finally heard it. I'm a little congested tonight. Buddhism, you say, well, yeah, I don't think there's very much in terms of Buddhism. Well, look at this sprawling campus right here. What's that? That must be in some foreign country. That's right here in Lisa Viejo. It's a place called Soka. Ever heard of that? Now, of course, Soka, if you didn't know it, is a, a, it's named after a branch of a Buddhism. 
And though they'll say on their website that they are a secular, non-sectarian university, uh, just back in, in 2003, two professors sued Soka University for religious discrimination uh, and pressure because they were not Buddhist, preferential treatment to the Buddhist professors on campus. Even as late as 2011, OC Weekly did an expose on all the proselytizing of non-Buddhist staff and faculty there and even students. Now, Soka denied those claims, uh, but that nevertheless is a... It's a Buddhist-founded uh, campus. And you look at a piece of property like that that's just, what, two, two and a half miles from here? And it's an amazing financially underwritten uh, organization. It has a billion-dollar endowment as a university, and it only has 412 students. 412 students. Academic staff is 67. That's a six-to-one ratio. Compare that, for instance, to Biola University that's up the road. It's got 4,000 undergrads and 1,300 postgrad students. So what's that? 5,300 students, and they have an endowment of $100 million. Soka, with, what did I say, 412 students, a billion dollars. That's why they can build this amazing uh, campus and get it all done and amazingly, in some way, get uh, Lisa Viejo to sign off on all that. Don't get me thinking politics. But anyway, here is... I mean, you should know something about Buddhism, if nothing else. The word itself, Soka, Soka Gaki International, uh, which is exactly what's going on. The SGI Buddhist Center, the one I just showed you up at Lake Forest and Molten, that is associated with this branch of Buddhism uh, and the founding of Soka University. Of course, the real Soka University is overseas, but this is called Soka University of America. Amazingly wealthy, underwritten organization. You've been there, I'm, I'm assuming, right? Nod at me if you've been to Soka for something. I think I took our kids there for uh, swim lessons or something when they were little, or you've been there for concerts or whatever. Uh, sometimes it looks like a ghost town over there at Soka, doesn't it? A billion-dollar endowment with 400 students. It'd be a great Compass Bible Institute campus, wouldn't it? <laughs> so if you have $2 billion, maybe we can buy them out and uh, we can make that happen. All right. Anyway, with that said... Uh, let's look around here. Here's Irvine, the Buddhist temple in Ir Irvine, the Pao Thao temple of Afa Beckman and Jamboree. A lot of the architecture looks the same. Here's the one up in Santa Ana uh, off of New Hope Street. Uh, here's the one you'll find in Garden Grove at Magnolia and Catella. This huge edifice you think is in some foreign land. This is up in Hacienda Heights up there uh, off the 605 and near Whittier and the 60 freeway. Uh, so the Buddhists certainly are here in Southern California. There's a lot of Buddhists in uh, Westminster, in, in Santa Ana, all in South County. They're right here in Elisa Viejo. So to get familiar with this would be important. Not to mention, you'll see a lot of Buddhism in popular culture. Last time we looked at Hinduism in popular culture, uh, but Buddhism, uh, it, which as we'll see is a movement that grew out of Hinduism, uh, certainly has its advocates. And here's uh, Richard Gere, for instance, on YouTube, uh, espousing why it's so important important for you to become a Buddhist. You can see over his left shoulder there uh, the Buddha statue. Uh, and of course, when you heard Tiger Woods getting uh, chased down by his wife with a seven iron or whatever happened way back when, he got on talking about his Buddhism. He's going to return to his Buddhist religion, that he's a Buddhist. And, you know, he was in, in that Mia Copa he was going through there with his uh, infidelities. But anyway, claims to be a Buddhist, not a very good one by Buddhist standards. Orlando, and Orlando Bloom claims to, to be a Buddhist. I put a bunch of names last time. People say, I don't know who all those people are, but you know these faces. Uh, they don't call him a Buddhist monk. I read one article. They call him the Buddhist hunk. So, so I don't see it, but I don't, I don't know. I, what, what can I say? Wear a black tie and a black shirt. I guess that's all it takes. But here's some hunky people, apparently. I guess they just split up. Uh, not that I keep track of that kind of stuff. But Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, they were raising their son. Uh, I think it's a son as, as a Buddhist and uh, were vocal about that. Uh, Herbie Hancock, an amazing jazz pianist, and he gets around and has been around in the jazz scene forever. Hardcore Buddhist of the S. GI segment, uh, which is related to Soka University. It's, an, uh, it's within that banner. Uh, he'll, he'll talk about it. He'll teach on it. He'll hold seminars on his Buddhism. Uh, Steven Seagal, uh, now Buddhists are pacifists. This isn't a good poster for uh, Buddhists, but anyway, he claims to be a Buddhist. Tina Turner, uh, I try to pick people that just dabble in it, although she may have uh, I mean, she's not a, a hardcore practicing Buddhist, but certainly has vocally uh, been interviewed and said it's been a very important part of her life, getting her through her hard times in life. Uh, Uma Thurman, Jeff Bridges, 
claims to be a Buddhist, Goldie Hawn, remember her. And, and believe it or not, now you're not going to believe this, Bill Clinton, you're going to say, oh no, he's not a Buddhist. No, you're right, he's not a Buddhist. He's supposed to be a Southern Baptist and not a very good one at that. Uh, I think he was a Southern Baptist, I can't remember, but it's certainly some problem. But a lot came out a few years ago with his foray into Buddhism. Here's just a few of the headlines, Buddhism in the West, or Buddhas in the West, even Bill Clinton turns toward meditation. Uh, Bill Clinton hires a Buddhist monk, chill Bill. Clinton turns uh, to the art of Buddhist meditation to relax. Bill Clinton embraces Buddha, uh, Buddhist meditation. So a lot of that in the news and him engaging in this. And, and I think it's not just the, the gossip uh, rags that are, are saying this kind of thing. So, But at least you see high-profile people that have no problem uh, getting involved in, some ardently so, some teaching it, some proselytizing for it, uh, and some dabbling in it like your future president's husband. Um, and speaking of popularity in Western culture, probably no one more popular in terms of religious figures, uh, absent maybe Mother Teresa before she died, is the Dalai Lama. And, and he has had a high level of popularity here in Western culture, a Tibetan Buddhist. We'll talk a little, 32,000 shares. That's more popular than, than most religious figures, that's for sure. So we'll deal with that. But let's talk about the origins of Buddhism. Let's try and figure it out. It's out there. It's in popular culture. Richard Gere would like you to be a Buddhist. Herbie Hancock would credit all of his great uh, musical skill to Buddhism. There's the Buddhist hunk out there, I'm sure, that like to talk to you about Buddhism. Where does it all come from? Let's talk about that. It is a reform movement within Hinduism. And though not every Buddhist would like to say that or admit that, I mean, certainly that's what happened. We had a, a Buddhist who began this and started this movement and uh, was willing to turn uh, his back or at least turn a corner in, in Hinduism to, to um, in his mind, fix some of the problems uh, with, with Hinduism took place in the 5th century B.C. Now, think back in your Old Testament history. You'll know what's going on. Just had the close of the, uh, in 586, the fall of, of Judah and Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the period of Daniel. So the head of Buddhism is finding its origins, uh, and there's a lot of mystery about his life, a lot of fables that have grown up around his life. But this is about around the time of, of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Ezekiel. So right in that period, I mean, you think a lot, I'm sure, about the historicity of Daniel dealing with the lion's den or dealing with the king's food and vegetables. That period of time is when this uh, leader is is born who starts Buddhism in the northern part of India, the northeastern part of India. His name is Siddhartha Gautama. Siddhartha Gautama. He's born in the ruler-warrior caste in Hinduism. We talked about that last time we were together. So he's in an upper caste. As a matter of fact, he's from a very wealthy family. Uh, mother is a queen, she's called. Father's very important. Uh, lots of fables have grown up around even their anticipation of their son, Siddhartha Gautama, and, and uh, claims afterwards, at least, or so people have claimed for her, that she had visions of her son being either a great warrior and a great king or a great religious leader and, and claims a white elephant had appeared to her in a dream. He's born. They treat him as a special child, or so the story goes. They keep him sequestered in the palace. They think he's destined for greatness, but they don't know uh, what Siddhartha is going to be, but they want to give him all the best education. Uh, they marry him off to a beautiful princess at age 16. So he gets married as a teenager uh, in the palace, and he's sequestered in the palace. They want to keep him in the palace. They want to guard him, and they want to keep his mind pure, and they want to keep his life pure. So he's married at age 16. There it is. I put that down. And he definitely, as any sequestered person does, and any you know fairy tale, I suppose, he wants to get out and see the world. And he wants to see the world, and he wants to see the kingdom. He wants a tour of the kingdom. And he pleads, and he asks his father if he can go and see uh, the kingdom. And after many years of being put off, his father and all of the servants tried to arrange a tour for him where he would be toured around the kingdom that his father ruled over in northern India. And so uh, they tried to arrange it so that he wouldn't see anything disturbing. Well, at this point, he's 29 uh, years old, and he takes this tour. But as the story goes, not everything can be shielded from his eyes. And on this tour that he goes on, he starts seeing elderly people, which apparently he had never seen. He even sees a procession with a dead body and someone who's dead. He's never been exposed to that, or so the, sto or so the story goes. So you have a 
man here, apparently at almost 30 years old, that has been so sheltered and so sequestered that all these things are new to him. And of course, he's heartbroken over all the suffering that he sees uh, in the world. So he leaves. At this point, he's got a young son. He's got a beautiful wife. He leaves them in the in the palace, and he says, I'm going on to see if I can find a solution to the suffering in the world. I'm going on a quest to overcome suffering. So he goes, and first, for a few years, he pursues extreme asceticism, self-denial, fasting, uh, even beating yourself to try and inflict pain to get rid of, you know, whatever it might be that would give you this perception of, of evil and, and sin and, and temptation or whatever might come with what he perceives as evil in himself and in the world. Uh, and again, the way the Buddhists like to talk about this is much like Solomon. He'd experienced all this amazing luxury. Now he's been exposed to the worst, uh, well, not the worst, but he's seen everyday suffering and, and he's trying to make sense of it and and much like Solomon, as a matter of fact, Solomon, who precedes him by, what, 500 years, uh, you, write, you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see a lot of parallels between what uh, Siddhartha and, and Solomon are, are dealing with in terms of, of wealth. His dissatisfaction in, in the luxury of the palace and his life with everything he could ever want, the beauty of his wife and the, the, the being a father and having riches and, and having no needs, uh, he feels like that's an empty life. Uh, and, and it's not satisfying to him. And much like Solomon, uh, he's pictured as this prince that has everything and, and none of that's good. Now he sees suffering and he doesn't know what to do with that. So he's going to find a way to, to fix all this. How am I going to come? How are we going to answer this problem? As a matter of fact, it's one of the things you'll find if you read enough about uh, Buddhism that there, he's finding the middle way between asceticism and, and, and extreme luxury. Well, at age 35, after being so self-depriving at certain times in his life, it says he's even uh, able to see, you know, he could touch the back of his spine because he, his stomach was so, uh, you know, uh, concaved. And he, then he, anyway, he gets back to a place of relative good health. And at age 35, he decides to sit down under this fig tree, the Bodhi tree. And he says, I'm going to sit there until I can figure out the answers to life and figure out the answers uh, to all this suffering. So for many days, and all the stories, you know, they, they debate uh, the details of all this, but certainly after many days sitting there, he has some battle in this trance that he has in his own mind, in his spirit, we would call it, and, and he fights with the evil demon god Mara, uh, who has an important role in, in, in Buddhism. So Mara is defeated, and there's a lot of fables about how Mara tries to keep him from this path of figuring out the problem of suffering, tempting him, tempting him with uh, the three demonic daughters of, of uh, Mara, and there's lots of different stories regarding that internal battle. But it's kind of that scene of Christ in the wilderness battling the tempter, and that's how they see Siddhartha at this point under the, the Bodhi tree for many days. Then, bam. He defeats the tempter and he comes out as the enlightened one. He's now figured it out. All the light bulbs have come on and he's, he's understood reality. Uh, that is what they call uh, being released. We'll talk more about this, of course, but being released, it's the whole goal of Buddhism. Uh, being released from suffering, being released from self. He's now fully aware which is exactly uh, what he wanted to discover the answer to suffering. And he says, this is it. I found it to be fully in tune in the moment aware. I no longer am bound by suffering. I'm no longer bound by self. I've been released from all of that. And I have been awakened and enlightened, enlightened, which is exactly what the word Buddha means. He becomes from that point forward, the Buddha. Buddha is the enlightened one. Buddha is the awakened one. Buddha is the one who's fully aware and, and, and he's been released from the bondage uh, to suffering and everything else that can bring attachment to this physical world. He, then he sets out. First, he's not sure. There's lots of stories about that too with uh, Siddhartha or now the Buddha. He's called the Buddha now uh, as to what he should do with this knowledge. And of course, he comes to the conclusion that he needs to share this knowledge with the world, how he came through this meditative state to reach this place where he's detached from self. He's detached from suffering. He's become fully aware and fully enlightened. Uh, he now is going to set out to impart this path to the world. 
impart it to everyone. So he becomes a leader and he becomes this person who says, now I've got knowledge a little bit like Muhammad. I I have the answers. God has spoken to me. That's what Muhammad said. Certainly that's not what uh, Siddhartha said. He's, you know, just realized the answer within himself, but he's going to go out and share this with the world. Uh, He lives for many years after this, collecting followers and dies at age 80 uh, of food poisoning. Now, if you've had any exposure, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Japan, uh, you know, Mongolia, any of these countries or even in any of their cultures, uh, you'll often see statues of the Buddha like this. Have you seen this before? Uh, I've seen this and always thought, well, what, you know, that's a chill religion. You know, their, their gods just kind of hang, chilling out. They're everywhere. Gigantic statues of what I'm telling you is the Buddha. Here's the Buddha. And, and there's all kinds of, of palaces where they light candles and they chant. There's little uh, statues you can find. You'll even find, you know, representations of this like at the, the, the Pier 1 Imports or whatever. You know, book shelf statues or whatever. And you think, well, what is this all about? This is his death at age 80. And the reason it's so important in such a part of Buddhism is because it is him stepping into this final state of release which is ultimately not just about a mental state of freedom from self and and suffering in this life, but it's being released from this cycle of of being stuck, as Hinduism teaches, in this cycle of reincarnation. So he's about to leave existence right here. And we'll talk more about what that means and how they label that. But this is very important. And as it says, and that's why there's so many statues of him, gigantic statues and small statues and all kinds of trinkets of him laying on his side, on his right side, because that's the legend of him dying. And the last words that he says, translated variously, but here's the translation I chose to give you. It's the basic translation, just they all basically communicate the same things. Here's the last words of the Buddha. All things are impermanent. They don't last. They're all changing. They're not real. Therefore, work hard to gain your own salvation. Those are the last words of Buddha. And so when you see the Buddha statues of of Siddhartha Gautama, who's now called the enlightened one, the Buddha, laying on his side, well, his final words as he steps out of the reality of this world into this final state that that is, is a full detachment of complete extinction, he says to the world in his last words, listen, everything is impermanent. Nothing is permanent. Everything goes away work hard to gain your own salvation. Now, knowing that that's almost like the tagline on all the theology of Buddha, that's enough for us to see this is the polar opposite of everything that God would teach us in the scripture, right? All things are impermanent. Well, I I just quoted through down on my notes here, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27. Yeah, God's going to come and shake all things that are made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let us therefore be grateful for having received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No, not all things are impermanent. Let's offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. We have a God who's given us the kingdom by grace, salvation by grace, something that's going to last an eternal kingdom. I mean, nothing could be more polar opposite. Uh, You know, that should be enough for us to close the lid on the laptop and say, okay, we we understand this is so far from biblical Christianity. But all those pictures of the Buddha on his side uh, are him dying. and, And there's so many of them made because of his parting words that sum up all of Buddhism. Now, I'll give you that before we look at some of the components of the basics of Buddhism, but let's talk about that. So now, the difference is, if you notice the little pictures in the bottom right-hand corner, I've had little silhouettes of him sitting by the tree. Now he's enlightened, and he's got the halos and all that, and so many pictures of him sitting under the Bodhi tree, the fig tree, as the enlightened one. And, And what are the basics? Well, one is that there is no God. There's no creator God. There's lots of deities, lots of powers, lots of demons, but there is no creator God. There's no personal God. Things have always been, we have always been, Uh, there is no God. So I I can't give a name to that. I'm going to give you five key words to Buddhism in this list. Five key words. I got no word for this because there is no no God. And Buddha is not a God, though he's revered and he's venerated. And in some segments of Buddhism, because it really fractured and went into different uh, traditions, there are traditions that will worship him. If you watch what they're doing, you'll say, well, they're worshiping Buddha. But most mainline Buddhists, the traditional Buddhists, the way of the elders as, as it is, the, the primary traditional view. He's not a god. He's not to be worshipped. So uh, anyway, he's just one that showed us the way to enlightenment. No creator god. Now, here's the first important word. If you do any reading in Buddhism, you'll need to be familiar with this. You meet any different Cambodia or Burma or whatever. Uh, you need to know about the dukkha. Dukkha is the problem, the problem of human suffering. Now, I'm with you on that. I don't like it. Um, you don't like it. We'd like to be free from suffering. Well, that's the problem. 
he set out because of his, his life being sequestered in the palace, all this luxury doesn't satisfy me. I see suffering. What do I do? We got to solve the problem. We shouldn't be suffering as human beings. That is the problem. Dukkha is the problem. Human suffering is the problem. We need it solved. The painful existence that we have is that we're trapped in human suffering, not just for a lifetime because death doesn't free you from that. You go into this peri-nirvana state. It's called where this afterlife, like uh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead speaks of when I die, I'm stuck in this little period of limbo, so to speak, Bodhi, this period where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back, but I, I'm stuck in this cycle of rebirth. It's much like Hinduism, reincarnation. Uh, and that's called samsara. Samsara is the problem in a cyclical manner. Duke is the problem. You're going to suffer, you're going to suffer, you're going to suffer. Samsara is you're stuck in a pattern, in the treadmill of, of suffering. So even death doesn't take, take, this, take care of the problem. Here's the third important word in Buddhism you need to know. The goal is to be released from the cycle, which was what the Buddha was doing at his death as he laid on his side and passed into, you know, released from all things. He passes into nirvana. There's our word. Didn't have that in Hinduism. It's a Buddhist word. It's a Buddhist concept. I'm now released completely from the cycle of self and even the cycle of existence so now I'm out of the cycle. I'm off of, of the treadmill. I'm out of the rat race. Dukkha is the problem. Samsara is the locking into the imprisonment in it. Nirvana is the release. That's the goal. And nirvana, by the way, uh, is the word to be blown out as a candle. There's two languages where all the religious texts come from. I mean, uh, Sanskrit, like uh, Hinduism, the ancient language, and then Pali, where Pali is the other language, uh, northern India, where a lot of these religious texts were codified in, in Pali. So some of the words are, I mean, they're Sanskrit, some are Pali, but the, the point here is that this word nirvana means to be blown out like a candle would be. Now, some people, and I was listening to several Buddhist priests, and you know how much I love you? I have listened to so many Buddhist priests in the last week at airports, on airplanes, waiting for my luggage, listening to lectures by Buddhist priests. But anyway, I'm sorry. As some of them would say, you know, it's not like being blown out like, oh, that's such a terrible thing. It's like being blown out because the sun has risen. So it's, a, it's supposed to be a positive thing. Now, I don't think it's a very positive thing for you to sit around and say, well, I want to be extinguished. Well, that is the goal. Nirvana is to be extinguished, to be blown out as a candle would be. It's liberation from karma's bondage. Now, there's a word from Hinduism we know. And just slide that right over because it's the same basic idea. Karma is cause and effect. And what you do, it has effects in, in the next life. It has effects down the road. And the bad things you experience now is, is, is the payback from previous things that you've done. And, and, and that's a terrible thing because we look at the book of Job, for instance, and we recognize not all suffering has a direct cause and effect. Well, in Hinduism it does and in Buddhism it does. Uh, but you can be freed from that if you just get to the place of, of enlightenment. Uh, then you can be free. You can reach nirvana. Now, the path to get there is dharma. Now, we had this word in Hinduism as well, and we see it now in Buddhism, and basically giving us the same idea with more specificity. It's not just the right way, the righteous way, the way of, of good. It's the path to follow the Buddha's teaching. That's dharma in Buddhism. What, what did Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, tell us? That is what you need to follow. There's the path that he's laid out for us, and you need to understand that. I said there are five words that are important. I mean, there's probably a lot more, but... At least in my survey, I give you five important words. Here's the last one. Uh, sangha. You need to then connect with the Buddhist community. Much like church, you need to use a Christian word here, fellowship. Fellowship with other Buddhists. Now that word, by the way, if you do some research on that word, you'll say, well, I think Mike was wrong on this because this is a word that was used for the monks, you know, monastery. And that's true. Originally, that's what it was used for. But now it's used in popular usage in Buddhism for you to find your small groups. And they have these, basically. You get together, some of them once a month, where you sit and you discuss the teachings of the Buddha and how it applies to life. All of that happens within the community of, of Sangha. And everyone needs to be a part of Sangha. And if you listen to teachers, and I've listened to many of them, talk about Buddhist Sangha, it's about you being connected in some way to the community of the Buddhist. No matter how difficult it is for you, you, you keep finding whatever is practical for you to have that encouragement. Dukkha is the problem. Samsara is being locked into the problem. Nirvana is the release. That's what I'm heading for. How do I get there? Through Dharma, what do I need in the process? I need the community. I need Sangha. Those are the key concepts of basic Buddhism. All right. Now, to get this information, and we'll talk about their holy text later, but you could go, for instance, to Buddha, Buddha.net.net. 
where you'll get a lot of uh, clear uh, explanations of the teaching of Buddhism. Another one that you need to be familiar with if you're taking these down is DharmaNet, DharmaNet.org. That's not very helpful. Um, it's BuddhaNet.net and DharmaNet.org. And of course, you're familiar with the word Dharma, right? That's the way, that's the teaching of Buddha. And then one more might be helpful, the Buddhist Studies Virtual Library. That's C-I-O-L-E-K.com, C-I-O-L-E-K.com. But just if you search Buddhist Studies Virtual Library, you'll get that. And it's got a lot of authoritative information from uh, the Buddhism teachers. All right. Well, what's the Dharma? What do I need to follow? What are the teachings of Buddhism? Well, we start with the four noble truths, quote unquote. What are the four noble truths? There are four noble truths that Buddha apparently taught. Now, there, these texts, by the way, that teach us these things from the modern era as we look back, it's not like the New Testament where we have this very small gap with all of these documents uh, and copies of these documents. We've got a big gap. So we don't really have any historical confidence that we've got this right. Nevertheless, it is said that Buddha taught these four noble truths. And most of all Buddhists, no matter what stripe and color they're from, will agree with these. And it starts with this. And I've already basically given this in a nutshell, but they would say noble truth number one is life is suffering. That's the problem. <laughs> now, we would say there's suffering in life. They say, no, life is suffering. That is the real problem that we have. Life, right? All the pain associated with life is real and it is the problem. And basically, that's the enemy. And you can see life itself becomes the enemy. And I'm trapped because I'm trapped in the cycle of reincarnation. Suffering now, now here's the real key. And you can see immediately, if you've known any Buddhists, hung out with any Buddhists, or even listened to the celebrity Buddhists talk or interview on their little celebrity you know, rags that they give interviews on, you can see immediately the core of Buddhism in this second noble truth. And that is this. Suffering is caused by selfish desire. That's the second key. And to me, it's the crux of all Buddhism. And I've listened to dozens of hours of lecture from Buddhist monks and Buddhist priests. That is the problem. They want to free you from this issue right here. And that is that we have all these cravings and these cravings are what triggers our suffering. You know, and in a sense, we recognize the parallels biblically, even when we start to say, God, I know the issues of my life aren't always going to be solved as Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes by more stuff. Or like it says in Philippians four, it's not that I, I, I want to see you give me all the desires of my heart. Sometimes I need you to adjust the desires of my heart. And so in that sense, I can see a parallel to biblical virtue. I understand the fact that sometimes I need God to take away from my desires as opposed to just satisfying uh, my desires because there's something about diminishing returns and the problem of me constantly trying to get, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, and having that never satisfied. So I understand what they're saying, uh, but their whole quest becomes eliminating those desires. Suffering will end when the selfish desires are eliminated. That's noble truth number three. Suffering was going to end when you can stop desiring these things. And as I listen to the, the Buddhists teach on this, there's all kinds of words to grasp it, to even leaning. You stop leaning toward things. Stop leaning away from things. You get, you get a cancer diagnosis, you lean away from it. You, you get a, a, a brochure for a new house and you're ready to move into a You lean forward. All of those cravings and reactions, repulsions and, and quests, that's the problem. You need to stop with that. Now you can see where the meditation is, is going to become an answer to this. I need to get rid of all of these desires. And in a sense, it's as simple as that. The nut of, of Buddhism is you being so fine with whatever. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to roll with whatever comes. I'm okay with it. To be fully aware is to not have any of these cravings. It is to stop all wanting. Now this may surprise you. Even the craving to continue to exist. That's why death is embraced. Because in reality, I, I want this cycle to end and I'm getting closer to it ending and I, I have no problem with whatever comes my way. I don't want to crave anything. I don't even want to crave being me and being self. And, and certainly it's a freedom from that, suffering and self. This is what nirvana is. Nirvana is no craving, no suffering, no self, no existence. That is the essence of what I'm aiming for in Buddhism. I want to be done with me. I want to be done with my existence. I want to be done with craving. I want to be done with suffering. And you'd say, well, I know a lot of non-Christians like that. Well, yeah, they think you get one life, right? You only go on once in life and then you're, then it's over. 
See, for the poor Buddhists, they're stuck in this Hindu background, which says, no, we're on this cycle of reincarnation and karma. And they just feel this very depressive, pessimistic, I'm stuck in it. Well, I want to get to nirvana where I don't have any of that anymore. And they'll claim, I've heard a lot of double talk and tap dancing about how it's not a negative religion. It's really a positive religion because I want to be without all these negative things and suffering. But the answer to it is to be extinguished. Selfish desire will end by following the eightfold path. <laughs> this is kind of like, you know, you get three wishes and your third wish is to get five more wishes. And, and so anyway, there are four noble truths and the fourth one is you got eight more. And the, so you got you to do the, the eightfold path. And you study anything about Buddhism, you got the four noble truths, you got the, you got the eightfold path. What is that? That's a set of instructions to become fully aware, to be fully awake. And that's all a part of my meditative practices to be enlightened. I want to be that. And then like in the second tier uh, of Buddhism, I mean, it's fractured into lots of different groups, three primary ones. Uh, it, it is that you'll hear a lot about the Buddhahood that you are going to attain. And we all have the capacity to reach that Buddhahood and you're heading toward that Buddhahood as you become fully aware and fully awake. Selfish desire will end by following the eightfold path. Well, then I guess I got to figure out what the eightfold path is. Well, yeah, you do. The first one is right understanding. Okay, number two, we're going to come back to each of these and just put a little paragraph, a little parenthetical statement next to it. Right thoughts. Now think about this. I want to be released from suffering. I want to be fully awake, fully alive. I'd like to be uh, fully aware, rather. I'd like to be like the Buddha. How do I get there? Well, I got to have a right understanding. I have to have right thoughts. I need to have right speech. Wow, this sounds like a pretty steep moral code. Well, it is. I need to have right action. Well, of course, that would be good. I need to think right, right wisdom, right thoughts, right speech, right action, right livelihood, what I do with my life. I need to have right effort. You know, as I imagine this, I'd just be writing one word. Now you're writing three things down, sorry. Right mindfulness. I'll explain these in a minute. And right concentration. Okay. Understanding, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, concentration. Can't study Buddhism without those eight, the eightfold path of Buddhism. Sometimes they're divided into three categories which to me, I didn't find all that helpful, so I didn't even give you the three categories. But you could bracket these off if you wanted to. Okay, here we go. Right understanding. What's right understanding? You need to be thinking rightly about everything related to karma, rebirth, and nirvana. If you can think more often in your brain about the reality that what you do has karmic effects in the future and that you are not going to die and be done or face the judgment as Christianity would teach, but you're going to have to be reborn, but that path needs to be broken somehow by reaching nirvana, then you're thinking rightly. So think in terms of karma, rebirth, and nirvana all the time, and that's right That's right understanding, right thought. Right thought is to resolve to be detached, to let go of all attachments. You need to stop wanting stuff. You need to stop craving things. You need to stop leaning in for things or leaning away from things. You need to be detached from all of this. Suffering needs to be, and everything in this world needs to be because it's going to lead to suffering. Let go, drop it, palms down, everything, right? Speech is you need to be truthful in your words, not hurtful in your words. Well, that's nice. I can, I can relate to that one. That would be good. Only such a word as is edifying. Sounds biblical. Do no harm, which is taken to pacifistic levels, which the Bible wouldn't teach. And it's expanded in the precepts, which is coming next. There's 10 of those. Sorry, I didn't make the religion up. I'm just reporting on it. Number five, livelihood. Your livelihood needs to be, now that Hollywood starlets and stars don't always keep this, but possess only the essentials, <laughs> only what you need. Right? You, don't need a, you don't need a fifth bedroom. You can do it with two. Great, do that. You need to, no exploiting of anybody and, and just live modestly. Don't be ambitious, right? Effort, okay? Prevent what prevents proper meditation. Shield yourself from anything that's going to keep you from being engaged in meditation every day that's going to lead you to a letting go and a detachment that's going to lead you to nirvana. I just wouldn't be a good teacher if I didn't give you the eightfold path. I know this doesn't seem all that helpful, but I got to give it to you. Number seven, right mindfulness. You need to be always aware of what you do. See, that's the core of enlightenment, to always be in the moment, aware, unconscious. The problem is ignorance. When I think about my mind, that's how the Buddhist would say it. So I don't want to be ignorant. I want to be aware. I want to be present. I want to be here. I want to be mindful of, of everything, always aware of what you do and in what you do might be a better way to say it. Concentration. Of course, that is an expression that leads the Buddhist to, to practice meditation, absorption. That's another word they like to use in the meditative practice to be absorbed in it. And if you've heard Buddhist uh, chanting, which is kind of creepy for us in the West, but usually it's very monotone. You start with a tone and, and you can go on YouTube and listen to these various groups chant. 
and, and you stay on that and you chant together in the one tone and you get your brain uh, absorbed in, in one thing or one spot, um, they'll claim it's not a wiping away of your mind. It's about being fully present in the moment. And there's a lot of gobbledygook in the, in the instruction. And I've heard lots of instructions about Buddhist med- meditation. And, and, and sometimes it's, it's a lot like poetry. It's not very clear sometimes as to what they're asking for. Okay, so these are the eight things. And I'm sorry I didn't have it in your worksheet, but you jotted it down. Eight things. These are eight things that are the essentials of Buddhism. Now, you're going to be at the gym uh, and see someone with a Dharma wheel. What? Yeah, this is, the, this is the instruction of Buddha. That means it's the Dharma of the Buddha. The wheel is a representation of both the cycle of life and those eight steps. For instance, just to show you some body art here, because it's very popular in our area. And you'll say, oh, this guy's into fancy wagon wheels. No, that's the Dharma wheel. Put it right there on your upper thigh, near your left, right cheek. The Dharma wheel. The Dharma wheel. Put it there, the Dharma wheel. You've seen these now. You may not have known what they were, but these this is a religious symbol, the symbol of Buddhism. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Buddha's temple, you'll see the Dharma wheel surrounded by the, the, the demon of samsara, which is the cycle keeping you entrapped in the wheel of reincarnation, going through life and death and after death, the peri-nirvana and back to life. And that there's the demonic, much more than Hinduism. Though there's demons in Hinduism, there's a lot more graphic depictions of these demonic beings in Buddhism. Here's another example. And you'll see there, I could have thrown up endless examples. There's all variations on it. But the Dharma wheel with the spokes and the segments, the interior and uh, hub of ignorance and greed and all the problems and the trapping of someone in, in the cyclical reincarnation of life and the spokes being the, the, eight, uh, the eightfold path to get you out of this. And yet samsara is trying to lock you in it. The pieces of the pie are the stages of existence. The hub is the problem. The spokes are the eightfold path. That's why if you go to a Buddhist temple, you'll see this. And when I used to see this, sometimes I think, what is that? Why are they into, are they sailors? You know, it looks like a, like a captain's wheel. No, this is the symbol of the eightfold path to escape from the karma. If you're in the, like the chaplaincy, the armed forces, if you are a Buddhist chaplain, here's the insignia for the United States armed forces. If you're a Buddhist chaplain, it's the Dharma wheel. Uh, if you go, for instance, to Sri Lanka, here's the Sri Lankan crest. Look at the top right there. Do you see it? There's the Dharma wheel. Here's the seal of Mongolia right here. Mongolia. Look down here. Do you see it? There's the Dharma wheel. Here's the flag of India. Sometimes the Dharma wheel is represented with 12 spokes. You can look it up. 12 spokes or eight spokes. Eight spokes are the eightfold path, but 12 just decorative. There it is in the middle of the, of the flag of India. So you'll see this everywhere. I know we usually see it. We find out we see it here. That's why we see it in Southern California. All over people's bodies, it seems. But this has a, this is the core religious symbol of Buddhism. All right. Now, the back of the page. I'm so sorry. And again, I didn't come up with this, but there's 10 precepts of Buddhism. You can put a line between five and six. The top five, matter of fact, if you search Buddhism and you look for five precepts, you'll find those often because the first five are for everyone. Some people like to compare these to the Ten Commandments, and they don't like that because they don't like to compare themselves to anything Judeo or Christian. But the first five are for everyone. The last five are for the, the people that want to aspire to be a nun or a priest in the Buddhist religion or a monk. But let's look at these. Number one, first thing, first commandment, they're all negations, by, by the way, things you shouldn't do, prohibitions. The first one is you don't harm any living being. Does that sound like Hinduism? Sure it does because we believe in reincarnation harm no living beings. And yet they're very, I was listening to a Buddhist priest say he won't eat meat in his own home. He won't fix it for himself. But if someone offers it to him, well, then he'll do it. Like the Tibetan Buddhists, you know, they're not going to be rude. They're going to accept it, but they won't reject it, but they wouldn't do it themselves. Anyway, but you yourself are not to harm any living beings. No stealing. Don't take what is not given is the way it's put. But in essence, right, don't steal. They will explain this in many ways as it relates to lots of different sexual misconduct. But in essence, it's don't be, uh, don't engage in something that would be considered sexual misconduct. This is broad, no false speech. This includes gossip. This includes slander. This includes any outburst of anger. Of course, you're nowhere near 
reaching nirvana if you're an angry person. Matter of fact, that's one of the first things they'll go after in your life. If you want to be a Buddhist, you need to get to where nothing bothers you anymore, which sounds great for people that are all balled up and uptight. The problem is in biblical Christianity, there's no way to be a godly person without being angry. If you're not angry as a Christian, then you don't understand calling. And, and all I'm saying is the Bible is very clear to be angry, but sin not, because the only way to not be angry is to be in a place where there's no sin. Anyway, I preached on that before, but if you're new to my teaching, that may be hard for you to, I'll have to prove that to you later. Number five, no intoxicating drinks or recreational drugs. You can take medicines, but you can't, you know, you shouldn't be voting for that pot proposition if you're a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, only in California, I, I wanted to take a picture and post to my friends in different parts of the country that we actually have a, a, a porn proposition on the ballot. You just read that and you think, wow, I'm voting on what porn stars have to do. Did that bother you when you saw that on the ballot? I don't know. It's not only in California or Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps, but unbelievable. Number six, no snacking in essence. This is if you want to be a monk. You can't eat after 12 noon. No food at improper times is how it's put. It's stated variously depending on the translation, but basically it's no snacking, which I almost wrote it down that way, but that sounds terrible. <laughs> no food after noon sounds terrible. Anyway, no food at improper times. No watching, dancing, singing, or plays, and they mean that in the entertainment sense because Buddhism has a lot of dancing and there's a lot of uh, rituals and ceremonies that relate to the demons and expelling the demons and the prayer wheels and it seems like dancing even sometimes just to pray. Nevertheless, we're talking about the entertaining type of dancing. Don't engage in it. Don't watch it. We're not into plays, the theater. We're talking about the monks now, those that want to be in ministry set apart for this philosophy. No perfumes, no beautifications, no wearing adornments. Now, again, if you're above the line, that's for everybody. Below the line is for those that are committed and devoted to being priests, monks, or nuns of Buddhism. No luxurious beds. So when you're traveling, what's that hotel that gives you the heavenly bed? Can't go to that, that one. No high chairs, no luxurious chairs, no luxurious beds. You can't accept gold or silver as it's put. You can't accept money um, from people. Anyway, you study Buddhism, you got to study the 10 precepts of Buddhism, and, and, and there they are. A lot of rules about what you can't do, and all of that is about doing what is right because I want to earn my own salvation, to put it in the words of the deathbed of Buddha. Siddhartha told me, work hard at your own salvation to be saved. Here are my principles. i got to live by this. Now, there's no accountability to anybody but me. There's no God I'm accountable to, but I'm accountable to my own cycle of suffering. I want to break free, so I want to serve myself by working hard and being free from those things. I got to do this. All right. Now, I got to address this because at the end of the night, you'll still be confused because you'll say, well, I don't even understand how that relates to the this guy, the laughing Buddha. When I go get my nails done, not me, I don't get my nails done, but there's that big fat Buddha. They call him Buddha, right? You go to your Chinese restaurant. There he is, the laughing overweight Buddha. What is that about? I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about the laughing Buddha. Because if you look up the Buddha and you see this guy and you say, wait a minute, he's gained a lot of weight over here. What's going on? Okay, this is the fat Buddha, quote unquote, which is a misnomer, right? That's really not who he is. This is Buddha. Now they sit the same way because everyone sits that way. But Buddha from northern India who sat under the Bodhi tree and got fully enlightened, that's the skinny guy. As a matter of fact, there are depictions of him really skinny, though most of the stories of his life say he'd been restored to health by the time he was 35 and was fully enlightened. There are other pictures of him sitting there with him emaciated and his ribs poking out and his stomach concave. That's, that's Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. This fat guy, that's something else. The fat Buddha. Let's talk about who he is. This is a different figure. This is Putai. Now, it's related to Buddhism, and it's within Buddhism, but he's not Siddhartha Gautama, the enlightened one. Hote is another word. Budai, Budai, Budai. That's a problem. It sounds the same, but it's a totally different person. Okay, who is he? He's a he's a 11th century Chinese monk within Buddhism. So he's a Buddhist. Matter of fact, he claims to be the reincarnation of a very important person, but he is not Buddha. Maitreya, that's who he's a reincarnation of. The 11th century monk, the reincarnation of the Maitreya Buddha. All right. He's a Santa figure. These are my words. They won't call him that. But he's the Santa figure. Much like there was a real Saint Nicholas. You know that, right? Nicholas of Myra, who was very generous to people in his village. He was a pastor. He, you know, punched Arius in the face. 
uh, at the Council of Nicaea. If you don't know the story, I preached on that before. But uh, this is the monk within Buddhism who's seen as the Santa figure. He carries a cloth bag with food and candy that he gives away. Budai means cloth sack. And you can see it right there. Do you see it? Whenever you see the fat Buddha, you'll see the little sack by his side. That's where he carries food and rice and, and, and fruit and candy that he gives away. He's the Santa figure. So, you know, when you see people walking into the nail salon or the Chinese restaurant rubbing the belly of the Buddha for good luck, he's the happy Buddha, but he's known as the deity of abundance and generosity. But he's nothing more than the reincarnation of an important Buddha that actually, now it's going to blow your mind here, he's associated with the coming future Buddha to restore the lapsed dharma. Now, it sounds like we're talking makeup language here, but follow me. If you've, if you've noticed dharma, you know what that is. That's the teaching of the Buddha, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the ten precepts. That teaching of Buddhism is going to lapse, so the teachers of Buddhism say, and it's going to lapse 4,600 years after Buddha, Gautama. Uh, you know, Siddhartha, Gautama, the Buddha, the enlightened one. So that means we have Buddhism for another 2,584 years. Then it's going to go away and it's going to be dormant and everyone's going to stop practicing Buddhism and it's going to lapse and we're going to have this terrible time in the world because no one's going to be enlightened and we're going to have a world without Buddhism. And then after society goes to pot, literally and figuratively, then what happens? Then the future Buddha shows up and it's going to be another reincarnation of Maitreya Buddha, the happy Buddha, the generous Buddha. He's going to come back. He's going to restore Dharma to the world and he's going to usher in, I'm sorry to say, a millennial style paradise on earth. So the fat Buddha, though for most people, even if you talk to the owner of the Chinese restaurant, he'd just say he's, you know, a good luck charm or whatever, depending on how devout he is. But the point is he's, he is seen as kind of an amulet or a good luck charm. That's true. He's a representation of generosity and fortune and happiness. But if you know who he is in Buddhist theology, he is one reincar he is one incarnation from the 11th century of what's coming in the year after the year 4,600. No, no, I'm sorry. Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha said 5,000 years after his life, or they say he said that it's going to disappear. That's 4,600 AD, which means we got 2,500 more years to go. After that, we got no Buddhism. Then the world gets terrible. Then this guy shows up, the fat laughing Buddha, another reincarnation of him, and he restores it. And that's the best I can do in terms of Buddhist eschatology. So we got a long time here to go with Buddhism and then no Buddhism and then the millennial Buddhism. So when you see the fat Buddha, it's not the guy under the Bodhi tree 500 years before Christ in the time of Daniel. It's a different guy, 11 centuries after Christ, and he's just now the nail Chinese restaurant guy, for most of us in the West at least, right? All right. Now, main schools of Buddhism, this may be too academic for some, but if you do travel or you know anything about people in this area, you need to at least understand the three different kinds. Theravada. Theravada Buddhism, okay, that's the first kind. Mahayana Buddhism and Vajjana Buddhism. Vajjana, Mahayana, Theravada. These are the three branches of Buddhism. Okay, main branches. And there's all kinds of sub-branches. But just to think about this geographically, in the southern area of this compacted part of the world that we looked at at the very beginning, Burma, Thailand, all those areas there, Cambodia, that is where you see Theravada Buddhism. That's about 38 to 40% of all Buddhists would say, I'm a part of the Theravada Buddhists. More on that in a minute. Then there's the eastern parts in China and Japan, all the way out in Japan, this would include uh, Zen Buddhism. This would include the uh, Soka variety of Buddhism, the SGI Buddhism, Soka Gaki International Buddhism, and what we have up here in Laguna Hills, Japanese Buddhism. Then you have this, this kind, the Vijjana uh, Buddhism, which is, oh, I should have given you about 55%, 56% is the Mahayana. This is the minority, 6%, 7% is um, the Vajjana kind, and that is Tibet and Mongolia. That's in the northern part, up in China, western China as well. Okay, map might be easier. Southern, Theravada. Eastern, Mahayana. Northern, Vajjana. There is how, in basic categories, Buddhism split into this region of the world. Now, let's understand them just a little bit. Theravada, 
literally means the way of the elders. This is the traditional Buddhism, the kind that's only seeking the historical teachings of Buddha, and they claim to have them in what they call the Pali Canon. The Pali Canon are writings that they consider scripture, and it's a library of books that are probably about, it's about like you taking your ESV reference Bible and, and putting like 10, 11 of them side by side. There's the Pali Canon. And those they believe are the most traditional, original, oldest teachings of Siddhartha, Gautama, the enlightened one, the Buddha. That's traditional Buddhism in Burma and Thailand down south. Mahayana Buddhism literally is called, it means the, the great vehicle. Uh, and they believe that there's new additions to the, uh, they would say a more complete, of, co- of course the uh, Theravadas would say, no, it's a perversion and a corruption, but the Mahayanas would say, no, this is a completion, a greater completion of Buddhism. And these are the two major branches, 40% and 50, 55% of Buddhism. And some, if you study Buddhism, sometimes you only get the Theravada and the Mahayanas discussed, Southern and Eastern. But we've got to talk about the, um, we've got to talk about the, the Vajjana part because that's very popular out here in the West. They add the sutras, which are the enlightened teachings, and you've got even more scriptures involved in that. Matter of fact, a ton of them. And I'll show you where to find those in a minute if you ever want to delve into those. Vajjana. Oh, I should say, Mahayana, one of the things that makes that distinct, Theravada, Theravada Buddhism is basically you and you alone have to deal with your own salvation. As Buddha said, work out your own salvation. Mahayana became much more we are the world kind of religious. Let's help each other. Mariana, like I said, is the Soka University founders, the SGI up here in Laguna Hills. They're the kinds that would say, you know, we are the world. There's the Buddhahood in everyone. And what we can do is we can not only seek Buddhahood ourselves and enlightenment, but we can do that vicariously for others. So it's a much more compassionate. I'm Herbie Hancock, some of these celebrities, you'll find most of them are in this middle section, the Mahayana uh, form of Buddhism. But the Vajjana, this last section, the Tibetan and Mongolian style, and there's all kinds of subcategories, is the diamond vehicle. And, and I like that it's called, and literally it's called the diamond vehicle, because diamond, I think of the diamond lane on the freeway, and it, it's the fast, fast path. The other forms of Buddhism apparently are going to take you a long time to break out of Samara and, and be free in Nirvana, this is a faster way to get there. And it's more of the Kabbalah of Judaism or the Gnosticism of Christianity. It's the, it's the esoteric secret teachings. And, and, and they add a whole other section of scriptures called the, the Tantras. And, and if you look up the Tantras of the Northern Buddhism, you'll find it sounds a lot like the mysticism of Judaism and everything becomes very mystical and metaphysical. And, and so they're positing and, and, and proffering a kind of fast track to nirvana. All right. And again, that may be more academic than you need, but I wouldn't be fair in covering this without at least distinguishing the three major branches of Buddhism. If you want to read the Bali Canon, Pali Canon rather, you can find the Pali Canon online at Pali Canon online. And there will be the scriptures for, for that. Um, the BuddhaSutra.com has all of those Mahayana um, uh, writings including the the Lotus, which is one of the fam- most famous. This is where most people are in the celebrity group. And then if you want to find the best way I, I found to get to the individual writings of these Gnostic-style esoteric teachings, just look up on Wikipedia this branch, and then on the right-hand column, you'll have all of these tantric texts that are listed. And you'll have to click through those one by one if you want to at least read a sample and get a get a flavor of what all this esoteric form of Buddhism is all about. And of course, the other two branches look askew at them, and yet they're very popular, even in the West, very popular, because you can make up your own experience as you go along in many groups. I mean, we keep adding to the authoritative teachings. All right. I want to to reach some Buddhists for Christ. What do I need to focus on? Well, first of all, if you compare all that we have going on with our authoritative writings versus their claims to know anything about anything beyond what we experience, they have no authoritative text. We have a reliable written revelation from God. I can't get past that in almost every group we deal with because they're always going to downplay the written word of God. For instance, the Dalai Lama will say, well, Jesus was an enlightened one. Jesus was, you know, one of us. Well, really, that means you're going to have to take everything that I have in my Bible regarding Jesus and say it's not true because there's no way you're going to fit Buddhist thinking into Jesus's teaching. 
See, so they're always going to undermine the reliability of your text. And so you need to go back to understanding the reliability and origins of the Bible that let us understand with confidence that we have the word of God. And when we do, we can say, Jesus wasn't one of your enlightened ones, which a lot of the modern Buddhists like to say, because they don't want to discount him. They want to include him. They want to be very accepting and inclusive. Well, you can't do that and believe in the written word of God because it, as I like to say, has the truth has hard edges. And, and in Buddhism, there's no, there's no place for that. So we need to establish the reliability of the scripture. And we need to always start there, I think, with Buddhism, with Buddhists. And of course, we need to talk about a personal God. And one way I, I, I thought in my contemplation about reaching Buddhists for Christ is going back to what they're searching for. This is the third point. We're made in God's image. They're always talking about our need to do good, to do right, to be compassionate. Uh, all these, and a lot of them are great, all the things they discuss about mercy and kindness and compassion, you're right, they're, they're good experiences, but they're all reflections of a God who is that. In other words, the only good we have in human experience comes from a God who created us in his own image. So I think we need to go back, not only to we have a personal creator God, but the only realities that you experience in terms of good and kindness come from a God who is personal and is good and kind. So I, I want to keep going back to the fact that we have a God who's created us and that God, and I know this is a lot, this is working our way backwards, but this God is seen in the goodness of man even, right? Quote, unquote. In the fact that we can be kind to someone shows me something about a God who is personal himself and has given me that ability to be kind without being blasphemous. I, I, I want to point out to the, the Buddhists that um, your hopes for what you want to experience, even in this life in terms of good, comes from a, the only definition you have comes from a God who is good. And then I want to be as clear as I possibly can that suffering cannot be evaded by your own efforts. And it's almost as though Buddhism is self-defeating in that it tries to tell you the only way to escape from suffering is to escape from everything. And all I'm trying to say in biblical theology is that suffering can be evaded, but it can't be evaded on my own efforts. There is an unshakable kingdom, and that kingdom is coming, and that kingdom is without suffering. There's no suffering, there's no dying, there's no pain. That's the reality of what Christ promised, and he did it and proved it through the resurrection. And I think the thing to camp on that it has to resonate with every Buddhist at some point, if you really could talk heart to heart with a Buddhist, is that, listen, this personal God, if you just imagine that for a minute, who is all those goods, all those good things that you envision that you want to be in yourself, that God has created you for relationship, not only with him, but with other people like him, people, us. And you know what? He's not created you to be extinguished. That's not what the good God's plan was. Your only hope in this nihilistic philosophy that you have in Buddhism is to escape reality and therefore be done with suffering. There's a better way for you to be done with suffering and yet not be extinguished and not be blown out. That's the whole point of biblical theology. And I always want to remind them, human suffering is not just this unavoidable reality, which they speak a lot about. It's real, it's reality, it's the thing. We got to get rid of it by getting rid of who we are. I'm going to say it's there and it's a real thing, but it was a, it was a, conscripted reality on human nature, I should say on, on the created order, Romans chapter 8. He inflicted unwillingly on creation this pain and in our bodies being made of the dust of the earth. All of this pain that we experience is a result of Adam's sin. And therefore we need to see the reality of it is not something we can escape simply by ceasing to exist. It is something that God imposed and then he can liberate. And in that, I, I want to recognize the problem being sin against a very personal God. We sin against God. God can remove this suffering. But first, we've got to deal with the problem of sin. But you only get one go around to solve that problem. It's a point a man wants to die. And that's a great cop-out in my mind for people not getting it right in this life. They have this demonic lie that somehow we'll get another crack at it the next go-around. But the Bible is very clear. I quoted it last week, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is apt for Hinduism, and it's certainly apt for Buddhism. It's a point on a man wants to die, and after that comes the judgment. We've got one opportunity at this. The good news is Jesus absorbed, if you put it in Buddhist terms, sin suffering for us. He absorbed it. He took it upon himself. He was willing to suffer so that I don't have to suffer. I have a solution to suffering, and it looks very different than the Buddhist solution, which is very defeatist, and that is that you have to cease to exist. You stop being yourself. I'm saying, no, I get to be myself. I get to be an entity that exists beyond this life. I don't get absorbed into nothingness. I get, in a, I get placed into a place that has the removal of suffering because one in the universe absorbed that suffering for me. My penalty was paid for on the cross. And at the very heart of it, which starts at the very beginning of, of Siddhartha Gautama's quest to deal 
with peace in the midst of a chaotic world, I want to tell them, you know, Christ gives that peace that surpasses understanding. Paul can have his back whipped open with Silas in a Philippian prison and sing hymns at midnight to God. Daniel can be quiet and at peace with lions surrounding him in the lion's den. Paul can say, I know what it is. I know the secret of contentment, whether having a little bit or having a lot, being clothed or going naked, having food in my belly or, or, or starving. And, and, and that's really the whole quest of Buddhism. And I'm saying the Bible offers the solution. What you seek, we have, and, and we have it, not because we want to cease to exist, but because death has lost its sting and there's no penalty for me beyond the grave because Christ absorbed the suffering for me. And of course, Herbie Hancock and Richard Gere and Uma Thurman and all the rest of them doesn't like Christianity because it's so judgmental. They're all about compassion. But if this is true, what I've just said, then the ultimate act of compassion is me calling people to repent of their sins against the personal God and to throw themselves on the cross where the suffering has been absorbed by the cross of Christ. I, that's the most compassionate thing I can do. And in that regard, it gets me back to what I said at the beginning when it comes to God's written revelation. Truth has hard edges. And it's going to call you to do the right thing, not so that you can save yourself, but starting with admitting that we're sinners, following Christ, and then doing what he's asked us to do. More could be said, but those are the high points as I think about reaching Buddhists for Christ. I've been, I've been late in weeks past. I'm early tonight. I know. I know. Don't applaud. It's, it's, it's a good thing. It happens at least once a semester. Let's pray. God. Hard for us as Westerners in America sitting here thinking about something that for many of us is so foreign to us. The closest we've gotten to Buddhism is seeing uh, the fat Buddha, so to speak, at a restaurant and um, hearing something about some celebrity maybe, but or at least hearing the words nirvana and karma and all the rest. But we don't know really what it is for people that are locked into such a, though they deny it, such a pessimistic philosophy that becomes for them, and in my words, it becomes a technique for them, a technique to try to avoid the pain that they feel. And though they admit that the pain is real, which we do too, they think the only way to escape it is to cease to exist, to be absorbed into nothing. God, I just pray that we could give people, especially people who've been exposed to this kind of Buddhist philosophy, the great hope and the joy and the optimism of knowing that you've created us to be people that enjoy you forever and enjoy one another in a place where you are going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, no mourning, no crying, no death, no pain. And God, that that was accomplished through dealing with the very personal violence that we've done against the holiness of God by our decisions and our behavior. And that Christ has willingly become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and in that be acceptable to you and hear from you one day, enter into the kingdom prepared for you for the, from the foundation of the world. God, thank you very much that there's a day coming for us to be fully realized, to use even psychological terms in our era, where we have all that we have desired, all that we have been created to be and will be that because of Christ. And God, if there's anything antithetical to Buddhism, it's the fact that that great gift is one that is granted to us by, by faith. It's done in a way that is so undeserved. It's called grace and it's held out to us in the Bible as something that we should rejoice in as being just humbly thankful and being aware of how undeserving we are and that we cannot agree with Siddhartha that somehow we're going to work hard to save ourselves. Thank you so much that we have been saved by the merits and the work and the suffering of Christ. So God, help us next time we encounter someone from this part of the world or someone who's bought into this, even Americans that have, to call them back to the problem of sin against the personal God and the great love that you've shown in sending your son to the cross so that we might have a place to live forever, to live forever. And we look forward to that day, God, and we thank you so much that that grace is available to us even now. So let us be active in sharing that as we'll talk about this weekend as we look at Luke 15. Give us a great enthusiasm to share the good news of Christ. Thanks for our study tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.